So Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all mankind's glory is like the flowers of the field. And that grass withers and flowers fade away, but that God's word stands forever. So let me pray for us before we talk about it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that you, would, that you would be here with us. That you would apply your words to our hearts. Father, you know the distractions of my heart. Uh, you know the, the sin of my heart. And I pray that you would um, not inflict that in any way on, on our hearers tonight. That you would be in, at work in spite of all of our natural bent to not listen to you. Uh, that you would open ears so that we might hear. And that we might hear about you and who you are and your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, we, um, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we are picking up where we left off last week with this, with this same passage. And I'm going to use the same opening illustration uh, that we used last week because uh, I couldn't think of another one. And I think it worked. So if you were with us last week, you know that I mentioned uh, that one of or maybe my favorite comedian is a guy named Brian Regan. And he has uh, one particular bit um, that he uh, does in his routine where he basically describes his biggest social fantasy. And he says, my biggest social fantasy is I wish that I could be one of the, uh, what was it, uh, 12, 12 people that have ever walked on the moon. And he, he goes on to describe the scenario uh, of why he would like to be able to say that, truthfully. And he basically says, because it's the ultimate trump card. In whatever social situation, you know, and he talks about how people tend to tell stories about themselves. And, you know, we just love, we're not even listening to the other people. It's just, we're only listening so that when you stop, I, I, now I can start and tell about me. And, and we're always one-upping each other, you know, how it's the like, oh, that's nothing. Wait till you hear this. And he says, it's, it's at that moment that I wish I could just let that guy go. And then when he stops, say, I walked on the moon. Because it's, it's the ultimate. You cannot top it. There's nothing bigger than that. And as somewhat silly as it might sound, that's a little bit like what the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage. Or at least what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus... Jesus is the ultimate. There there is nothing greater. He is the supreme one. There is nothing that tops him. Nothing comes close. And so this semester, 
in some ways, really, that, that is the theme of Hebrews as a whole. So if you've been with us, you know that we're, as we study through Hebrews, our theme is better than you can imagine. Because that's what the, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians that are really tempted, they're Christians, but they're tempted to go back to their, uh, to their Hebrew faith. They're being persecuted and they're tempted to sort of bail on Jesus because it'd be a lot easier. And so we've said they're essentially wrestling with the question, what's so great about Jesus anyway? And the author of Hebrews is saying to those people, look, Jesus is way better than you can imagine. He's so much bigger, so much better. And he spends the whole of his letter uh, explaining that. And so like we said last week, this, this first part is sort of the 30,000 foot view, right, of the whole book. It's kind of the big idea. And here he, you know, uh, he talks about Jesus as the ultimate. So last week we saw from this passage that Jesus uh, is the inheritor of everything in creation. We saw that Jesus is the creator of everything. And that, uh, that he's the representer of God himself. And so this week, what I, want to, what I want us to see from this passage, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is the sustainer, that he's the purifier, and that he's the ruler. So those three things. So first, Jesus is the sustainer. Like we just said, Jesus, last, uh, earlier in the passage, you see that he's the inheritor of everything. And that he is, in fact, the creator of everything. And now we see, look in verse 3. Verse 3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he's actually sustaining all of creation. That everything that exists, it exists because of Jesus. And it continues to exist. It continues to hold together because he's making it hold together. He's actively sustaining it. It's not a passive thing. Jesus didn't just create the universe and with you know, inertia and get it spinning and then just sit back and watch. He's actively, intimately involved, sustaining creation. Right? The reason that your chair is holding you up right now is because Jesus is holding it together. The reason we are... Your feet are on the floor and we're not, we're not floating off is because Jesus is sustaining the powers of gravity. If Jesus stopped, everything would come unraveled. It's an active sustenance. Right? It made me think a little bit about how parents with a newborn, when you have a baby, and I, and I hope that this should be obvious to you, when you have a baby, you have to actively keep that thing alive. It's not, it's not just like, make sure you don't kill the thing. You've got to keep it alive, right? You don't just have to get food for it. You have to put the food in its mouth. You have to do, basic, you have to do everything for it. And if you stop actively caring for it, it, it won't live. It also made me think of this story that I heard uh, coming out of, where, was, where did this happen? In Iceland. I read Icelandic news from time to time. Uh, in 2014, 
there was a guy that was brought into the ER there, and he had been stabbed through the heart. And so they begin to work on this guy. And so the, the surgeon opens his chest, and because he's been stabbed through the heart, right, to repair this hole, someone, I guess a nurse, another doctor, actively had to pump his heart by hand throughout the whole surgery. I mean, think about that. Like this person is actually pumping their heart, this person's heart, pushing blood through their body, sustaining their life actively. And I want you to see that those are just, those are just sort of faint images, imperfect illustrations of, what Je- of how Jesus sustains everything. It's amazing. He's upholding the universe. So what does that mean for us? Well, I, I think you have to see from those illustrations that if, you're, if you are sustaining something, whether it's someone's life, right, with your hands or, uh, you know, the life of a child, something like that, then you are intimately connected to that thing, right? It's just sort of necessarily true. And so it, what it means is that Jesus, Jesus is very near He's intimately involved in everything that we do. Jesus is not distant. He's very near. It means that when you, when you and I eat something sweet, that the reason it tastes good is because at that moment, Jesus is actively upholding the properties of your taste buds and of your, the, the, your brain to receive that and you know, whatever else happens. It's because Jesus is actually working in that moment. It means that when you sit down and you study for a test and you work to to memorize something or to understand a concept and and when it works, right? when when you learn something, it's because Jesus is actively holding the properties of your brain to do those things together. But it also means... That if you, if you get drunk and then you have a hangover and then at some point you start to feel better, the reason you start to feel better is because Jesus is actively sustaining the property of your body, the properties of your body to, to heal itself. It means that when that... Uh, some sort of illicit sexual experience that you have, whatever it might be, it, when it feels good, the reason it feels good is because Jesus is actively upholding the universe, the nerves in your body, and you get the idea. Right? What the, this means, it reveals to us that Jesus is very close to everything that we do. And look, I want you to hear me say that the point is not, the point is not, so Jesus is watching, so cut it out, right? That's not the primary point at all. The point is to, is to show us, the author of Hebrews is trying to show us reality. And that, that Jesus is supreme. And that to imagine, to imagine that he's absent or has nothing to do with my life or, or has nothing to do with that aspect of my life, it is to live a lie. 
And the flip side of that, right, is this wonderful truth that, that if you're his, if you are his, then it means that, that you have the comfort to, to know that everything that you are and everything that you do is actively being upheld by the supreme one, by Jesus himself. And that's an amazing, empowering thought. Jesus is the great sustainer of everything. Secondly, what I want us to see from this passage is that Jesus is the purifier. Again, look at verse 3. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. So look, Hebrews is going to spend, in some ways, the rest of the letter uh, developing this theme you know, at great length. Um, this idea of, of Jesus uh, saving us from our sin, purifying us, being our, our high priest. Um, but this is where we get our first glimpse. The idea that Jesus is our great high priest, that he stands in our place, uh, that he's the one that represents us to God. And what we see is that Jesus' life and his death on the cross, that it, it brings about our purification. It brings about uh, cleansing. It makes us clean. Right? The sad reality is that because of our sin, you and I are not clean. We're, right? Sin makes us dirty. And it always leaves, it always leaves a stain. Sin always leaves its mark behind, and we can feel it. So we're built, no matter if you're a Christian or not, you're built to be perfect, to be clean, to be pure. But we're not. And we have this, we all, you know, again, whether Christian or not, you, you feel the, the stain of sin to some degree, whether you might call it something else. But we all f- feel guilt and shame. And we want it to be gone. Um, it makes me think. Uh, makes me think about people that have bad tattoos, like that they think they're bad tattoos. It's not me being judgy. I can do that plenty well, but that's not what we're doing. People themselves that have tattoos that they think are bad, right? Um, a friend of mine told me about a classmate of hers who, on their uh, senior spring break trip, and you know this is like buckle up, right? This. It's going to be a bad tattoo. So got across their shoulder blades, like across the back, right? Like, you know, Jersey style, right? Right across the back. Spring break 98. So not even just spring break, right? Which would be super weird to have like in huge block letters across your back. But like one particular spring break, 1998. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and guess that they regret that. Um, right? You can imagine how desperate you would be to get that, like, because right, alcohol is probably involved, let's be honest. And then at some point, they probably realize, like, I do not want this. I do not want this. Um, has anybody seen uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo? Anyone? All right. No, good. One, maybe. All right. All right. It's a movie. All right, moving on. Um, it's a pretty strong movie, uh, and it's basically about this, or at least the part I want to tell you about. It's about this girl um, who has a, a she's in 
in social services, right? Like she's, I guess, a ward of the state. And her caseworker uh, ends up raping her. And she eventually uh, sort of flips the script on him and uh, kidnaps him. And she tattoos across his chest, I am a rapist. And then she's able to know, I can't remember how, she's in his computer and such, and um, uh, says that if you ever get that off, if you ever try to get it off, I'll find you and I'll kill you. And so he is stuck with, with this thing, that's, you know, tattoo across his chest that says, I am a rapist. Right? It was true. And, and the, you know, a big part of the movie is he just desperately wants to get that off. And I think, right, there's a sense in which, in some ways, we could identify with that. Right? The, the, the stain of sin. There are things about us that I, I, I want that to not be there. And it just is. And this tells us, this passage tells us that Jesus, by his life and death, he's the one that washes those things away for good. That there really is a way to get that stain off. And it's because Jesus is the purifier. Right? So it means that those things that you've done, that when you think about them, I know you have, I mean, you have to have them. I do. Those things that when you think about them, you get that like pit of your stomach feeling. You know what I mean? And you just feel gross. That Jesus has come to wash that away. To make it go away. Make it, make you pure. Maybe it's the secret sin that nobody knows about. That you would never tell anybody about. Your addiction. uh, Drugs. Lies that you've told. Pornography. Whatever it is. Um, Maybe it's the things that you've done in in your past that haunt you. you. You know, how you betrayed one of your friends. How you cheated somebody. How you cheated in school, maybe. Um, your, your past sexual experiences, whatever it might be. Oh, or, yeah, or maybe it's, just, maybe it's just the things that you just are. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's how you are, and by you are, I mean me, um, just an angry person. Or how you're just a, a fearful person. Right? This says that Jesus comes and, and he takes those things and he washes them away, that they're gone. He makes you clean. Those things, they, they are true about us until they're not. And Jesus in his purification says, those things were true about you and, and now they are not. And one more aspect of this that I, w- I want you to notice in verse 3 again. It says that after... He made purification for sins. He sat down. And that's actually no small detail. Um, right? Hebrews, like I said, is going to develop this more later. But the high priest in the, in the Old Testament system, um, the high priest would not sit down until he was finished with his work. In, in the Jewish system, everything about the high priest was temporary and, and imperfect because He's a, he's a human, but he's a man and just a man. And he's offering animal sacrifices. It's, it's an imperfect, it's an incomplete system. And, the, and those sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again and again. But not with Jesus. 
Not with Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice, how he brings purification, he brings it once and for all. And he sits down because it's done for good. So that when Jesus washes those things away from you, they are gone forever. Not gone until you mess up again. And Jesus gets to bring it back up and say like, well, it's actually like the fifth time, the millionth time. They're gone forever. You really are clean. And those, they're washed away by Jesus' work. Because he did the work and he sat down. And so it means that when your conscience rises up against you and it says, and it whispers to you, you know, and it says, you know that you're a fake. Or you know you're nothing but a pervert. Or whatever name comes to mind. If you trust Jesus, then you get to, you get to battle with those thoughts, with the reality that you are once and for all clean. And that's good news. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see that this passage shows us that Jesus is the supreme, the great ruler. He's supreme in his rule. Verse 3 again, uh, really what we just mentioned. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right, Much like just mentioned, when the high priest would sit down, it was because he was finished. Um, and the, the idea here is that Jesus takes his place in, in the seat of honor, in the highest uh, The seat of the highest honor at the right hand. It's the seat of authority. And it's showing us that Jesus is the one that rules supreme over everything. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 uh, and following. It says, speaking about Jesus, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And we could sum it up by saying this, that Jesus, this shows us that Jesus is the great king. The great king, great ruler of all. Right, if you're, maybe you're familiar with the offices or the, the, um, the roles of Jesus, right, that he's the great prophet, priest, and king. Um, and here, yeah, we get the, the picture that, that he is the great king. And what does a king do? Well, by design, at least a good king, they use their rule, right, their authority, their power, to protect their people and to ensure that their, their lives flourish. That's what a king does. Again, a good king. And Hebrews wants to show us that that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's using all of his authority, all of his power to make sure, to protect and ensure the flourishing of his people. Of me and you. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're not familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster um, Catechisms, uh, they're basically a, uh, the catechisms are a series of questions and answers uh, that were written about 400 years ago. And they're basically a summation of biblical doctrine. Now, that might sound super dry, um, but it's basically like, here's what we believe that the Bible, you know, the truths of the Bible. It's in question and answer form. Um, again, 400 years old, 
And it's still, right, about as good as it gets. I commend it to you. You ought to look it up. Um, but question 26 in the Shorter Catechism said, uh, asks and answers this. Um, how does Christ execute or you know, play out the office of a king? And the answer is that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. All right. Now you might hear that and, and hear that Jesus is ruling over us, uh, rules over everything, and, and think that that sounds sort of overbearing, right? And, and I understand that. Um, you know, saying things like subdue us to himself, uh, ruling us. But again, the po- I want you to see that the point is not, look, Jesus is in charge, so get in line or get out. Right? You can fall, you know, fall in line or you can, you know, he, he's just going to make you. What I want you to see is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't rule to make us miserable. He rules to, to protect us. He rules to take care of us. Maybe even in spite of ourselves. And to make sure that we flourish. And so it, it's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful reality. Um, that if you're a believer, then you have the king of the universe using all of his resources on you to take care of you, to make sure that you're protected. Um, it made me think of a story com- stories coming out of 9-11. And I, I went back and fact-checked these. That, um, all right, so I find these fascinating um, as soon as the government realized that the, the events that were taking place, you know, the Twin Towers and uh, whatnot, were, were an actual attack, right, T- uh, terroristic attack, the Secret Service goes into action. And so they went into action to protect the president and the vice president in particular. So Dick Cheney was in the White House, in his office. All right, and get this. So as soon as they realized... There is a, you know, a threat of terrorism or you know, reality of terrorism. The Secret Service bust into his office and they carry him out as in his feet are not touching the floor. They come in, grab him, pick him up and carry him down into a bunker that's like way under the earth. All right, when the... Uh, uh, when the president's detail gets word and realizes this is real, uh, he was at a school in Florida, I believe. He was definitely in Florida. I think he was at a school. They immediately surround him. I don't think they carried him off, but they, they get him onto Air Force One immediately. Air Force One immediately ends up eight miles above the earth with three, uh, three F-16s escorting them. They fly to the to the middle of the country, to Nebraska, to some, you know, bunker, again, way under the earth, in the middle of the country. It's amazing. So, you know, humanly speaking, of course, there's no way anything is going to touch the vice president and the president. It's just not going to happen. They're protected from terrorists. They're protected, in a sense, even from themselves, like uh, you know, Dick Cheney was not allowed to say like, no, 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 I, I'm going to, you know, go help. Like, no, you're not. Because we are going to take care of you. And so 
Like, look, no doubt that the president and vice president were deeply worried about a lot of things. But, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Like, there's no way they were worried about their own safety, right? I mean, there's no chance. Wouldn't it be an incredible feeling to know that you... I mean, just to, just to have that kind of feeling, you have all the resources of the United States of America making sure you are safe and protected and flourish. That would be amazing. Right? The Bible's telling you that you have all the resources of the king of the universe. And he is dumping, using them all to protect and to, to make sure that you flourish. Now, granted, that might not look like what we want it to but he's the supreme ruler for our protection. So look, what does that mean? We're going to wind up with this. It means that you can, protection from all of his and our enemies, which are the same thing. So what does it mean? It means that, it means that you can have the confidence to know, if you're a believer, that sin is, your enemy, sin, is not going to win in the end. Now it might feel like it's winning, Right? And this helps us to, to remember reality. That no, the sin in my own heart is not going to win. It's not going to get the best of me. In fact, Jesus, Jesus rules over it. In fact, he's already defeated it. He rules over everything. Now look, that doesn't mean that we don't fight against sin. Right? Well, I guess Jesus will take care of it and I'll just do whatever I want to. Of, of course not. But we fight against sin knowing that we're infused with his power. It means that when you see evil and sin and death in the world, and when it creeps into your life, you know, when it touches you and somebody dies, when you read the news, and, right, and it, feels like, it feels like it's just going to win. Right? The Bible is saying it might feel like that, but it is not true. Because Jesus rules over everything. He is on the throne. He reigns supreme. And that's good news. Jesus is the supreme one. And there's no one else like him. And he loves you. And that's the good news. And that's the good news that's offered to to me and you even, even now. And I hope you take it. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what we have seen about you even these two weeks is so profound and, and more than our minds can catch up to. But Jesus, we, with what we can, would you help us to praise you? Would you help us to understand? Um, would you help us to, to see your love for us and, and even to, be, to submit to you, knowing that you, you take care of us? Um, because you love us and, and that you cleanse us. And so, uh, Jesus, I pray that everyone in this room would come to you for cleansing. And, and, and would you cause that to be the case? And we ask it in your name. Amen.